Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Helena, and we both work at the Emma's Trust. Just a little disclaimer, we're recording this over Zoom because of coronavirus and social distancing, so apologies if the sound is a little bit iffy at any stage. Uh, please do bear with us. Um, we'd like to welcome you to our podcast, Multiple Sclerosis, Breaking It Down, and this new episode which focuses on Carers Week, an important topic among the MS community that is sometimes overlooked. So in this episode, we'll be meeting some people who know a bit more about this subject and be able to tell us what it's like to be involved in some aspect of caring, as well as hearing from an expert on what resources and support there is available out there. So let's start off by hearing from Martin and his wife Lizzie. Now Martin was diagnosed with MS around 40 years ago, while his wife Lizzie offers support through unpaid care. They told me about how they approach their relationship and the importance of allowing one another the time to explore their own hobbies and interests. Carers Week is an annual campaign designed to raise awareness of caring, highlight the challenges unpaid carers face and to recognise their often overlooked contribution. In 2021, Carers Week runs from the 7th to the 13th of June and remains as important a campaign as ever. According to Carers UK, the COVID-19 pandemic has meant that many people are taking on more caring responsibilities for their relatives and friends who need support. Today, I'm speaking to Martin and his wife Lizzie to find out about their relationship and whether they feel caring plays a part in the dynamic. Hi, Martin and Lizzie. It's lovely to speak with you, Bay. Hi, Emma. Hi, yeah. Um, Martin, can I just start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about your diagnosis and those sort of early stages of your MS? Yeah, it was what, almost 40 years ago. And um, it was... I was with, with my mother... I was, and we went to the specialist. She was a great supporter of mine, not always appreciated by me, being the young upstart I was. Anyway, we, um, I'd been through um, uh, an MRI. I had a spinal tap and eventually went to the doctor. I can remember his name, Dr. Kaufman, a very kind man, very caring. But he delivered the news. Sorry, Martin, but you've got MS. And that was it. Now, I'd been used to kind of um, diagnosis before because I've got a, a heart issue I've got supraventricular tachycardia easier to say than spell but same thing my mum came along we went through I was at the National Hospital and um, when that diagnosis was handed down the whole setup was different and that was earlier that was in the about 1978, I was actually diagnosed for MS in about 1980, and um, it was very harsh. But what could you do? Mum was great, but there was only limited information. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your relationship, Lizzie, and sort of talk about whether MS was a part of your lives when you met, or whether that sort of came later? Yes, um, he had MS when we met. Um, we met at work and so we were colleagues for a while. We became friends. I knew about the MS and I, I sort of didn't know too much about it at that time. There wasn't a great deal of information about. Um, and because we were friends, then, you know, I just sympathised and he used to tell me how things were going and we'd go to the pub and he'd drown his sorrows for a bit and that would be it. But then a relationship started about two or three years in um, and at that point I realised that as the relationship was growing more serious then I had to find out a bit more about this 
illness, condition, call it what you will. Um, and the one thing I realised at that point, there really wasn't very much that I could glean from it. That was before the days of the internet. Um, so I went to the library and there were just two books that I found about MS. One concerned nutrition and the other one was just a general guide to, um, you know, a medical book really about MS, which really didn't give me a great deal of information. Um, but the one thing that I established very early on was the fact that he had to eat properly. And that was one thing living on his own, he didn't do. Um, when I looked in his cupboard, I just found chocolate biscuits and a pack of rotten old lamb chops and frozen um, food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was frozen food mainly so he wasn't taking care of himself and the one thing that I established was that okay so nutrition plays a part we have to deal with that and that was one thing after I moved in and then we got married um, I put paid to and I made sure that he started to eat properly and well which you know, has a knock-on effect because it's good for me as well. So for both of us, that's one thing that we did. But obviously, I had to come to terms with a lot of other things as well, um, where I didn't really understand um, much of what he was going through. If he was having a really bad day, I didn't know what that meant. Um, I didn't realise that the fact that he couldn't get up out of bed meant that he was suffering vertigo on that day um, and we had to deal with that. And so bit by bit, we've kind of put all those items together and, and made a whole, if you like. And I know now most of those symptoms and I know how it affects him. Um, so it, none of it really holds any horrors for us anymore it's inconvenient. Yes. And obviously being much younger, we had to cancel many arrangements quite often because he wasn't well enough to go. And in those early days, again, as I say, I didn't really understand why. Now I do. But for a lot of people um, newly diagnosed, it must be so, so difficult for them because they're their partners, their friends, their family just won't really know what they're going through. And I think that's something that grows over the years. Yeah. So would you sort of say it's been a, a sort of learning curve over the time then? Absolutely. Yes, it has. Um, and it, it's something that has grown. But, you know, we've been married for nearly 30 years now. So um, it's, it's something that we have grown up with and um, we've come to accept. Um, so at the MS Trust, we hear quite a lot of different perspectives on care and multiple sclerosis. Um, how do you guys sort of approach that subject? Do you prefer to sort of take the lighthearted approach? Do you, as you mentioned before we started the interview, you sort of just see it as a marriage first and foremost, and then whatever comes along with it, you tackle? Or how do you approach that? I think the one thing that we've established over the years, it hasn't always been this way, but we realise the only way to tackle it with some form of positivity um, because initially when I met Martin he was very negative about everything understandably and he had a, every good reason to be and I, I you know don't disagree at all but we've realized that being negative actually doesn't do very much for you uh, mentally or physically 
And I think that by changing our attitudes over the years, I mean, we've tried many ways of, of trying to cope with it. But positivity seems to be the one thing that comes out every single time. And yes, like you say, you know, um, I'm his wife. Um, I've grown into the role of carer. It wasn't something that suddenly changed. And we said, oh, right, today I've got to be his carer from here on in. It wasn't ever something on a CV. Um, but it was something that we realised had to happen because he needed more and more care as time went on. But I would have done it anyway because I'm his wife. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what you do. From my point of view, for decades, I mean, because I've had it for that long, I was the most uncooperative MSA you could possibly meet. And I don't think I'm unique with that because, hey, I've got MS. So the world is about me. And therefore, lack of understanding goes back to Dizzy. And I, it surprises me that she stood for it. She stood for it. <laughs> and I know seriousness because my, my attitude really did stink. You know, I was very full of good intentions um, I wanted the best for our marriage, for her. But at the end of the day, it was about me because it's the MS thing. And you're not, answer, you're not asking me the right questions. You're not understanding my reply. You're not inside my, my head, which is such a powerful instrument because as I've come to understand from talking to other MSs, because you've got MS, you don't remember who the person you once were before diagnosis. And the fact is, you're the same person. Except MS makes you think, oh, I, I, I can't lift that glass. Can you give me that glass, please? Because it's so tough. Because I'm tired. It's as easy to say yes as it is to say no. And then you garner a lot of goodwill that more people will do more things for you as opposed to say, let's just leave it. And you find yourself stewing in your own misery because people don't understand. They try to understand. It's true. But it's what you give out. And what you give out, if it's negative, it's going to come back negative. And you'll have, this is why you lose friends. Because you're ungrateful, you bore them. The only thing that comes out of your lips is MS, 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 MS. How are you feeling? Oh, a terrible day. How are you feeling? Well, it, it could be better, but how are you doing? You could be having the most miserable time because you've got your own problems. So isn't it nice that I've turned around and I've asked you how you are? And that's how to maintain friendship. Think of other people. It's all down to mindfulness, which I'm a, well, we're both really firm believers of. We are, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is as well that, that um, people don't really understand what a relationship's about until somebody has a condition like this. Um, and when you love someone, regardless, it, it doesn't make any difference what they've got. Um, I recall very early on in our relationship, when we announced that we were getting married, somebody we worked with actually said to me, um, are you marrying him out of pity? Which was the most outrageous thing I've ever heard. Yes, but yet he was caring for... A disabled wife. Sorry, she had disabilities. I can't remember what they were. And they had a young child. So it's not from somebody who was ignorant in the field of being together with somebody who, who, who was disabled. But it's still stung. 
Yeah, very much so. So, you know, that's something we've been very aware of that people often don't understand why we were together in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that must you, be. We don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wondered myself over the years, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what sort of do you both still work? What's the extent of your caring relationship there? Or is it just, as we mentioned before, sort of just a part of your um, marriage and your relationship there? Or is there extras? Honestly, I, I don't think that I do anything differently to how I would behave if he didn't have MS. Um, I can't really tell you what that would be, how that would look. We've never been there. He's always had MS all through our relationship. So we've accommodated that. The one thing that we don't do is fight against it because there's no point. It's there. Used to. Yeah. Used to because when my life well, it continues to change, the, the first really significant significant thing that mattered to me was I stopped driving, which meant I couldn't just put my foot down, go wherever I wanted to go, listen to whatever music I want to listen to, have it full volume. You know, it's that just that kind of thing. I wasn't a petrol head, but it's that independence. And then suddenly I've got a des- designated driver. And now that's, that's mean for the both of us. It's, I don't want to be driven. I'm a child. I want my steering wheel. Point is, I had to understand that Lizzie wasn't doing this for the state of her, her health or my health. I didn't understand it was, it was hard for her as well. So it's something we both had to get used to. And I think that might have been one of the turning points. My acceptance of my developing, not worsening, my developing relationship with MS. And Liz is growing with it too. In fact, there's, we're both, we've both got MS. Yes. Because she's right. grown with it from, well, for 30 years. And so she's lived it. So she suffers it in a, in a different way. She's the one that has to fill the phone calls. She's the one that has to do take over, just like a mother. And that's something else. Wife and mother, but not just to our son, to me. And I, and I don't know if I'm unique. I don't think I am. But I, I, always, I always showed a certain sign of resistance. Lizzie for years was trying to get me to eat healthy, which I do now. It's very, bit, very much like the OMS diet, but a little bit more tailored to how we do things. But I, I've been just slow to change. That's just who I am. But I got there. But I didn't make life easy for her. That's the child. But I think also it's very important to establish the fact that he still has to retain his dignity. And, you know, he's still Martin. And he's, he's the same person that he was 30 odd years ago so I can't take that away from him and I wouldn't want to Um, and I need to retain some of my independence too so it's very important from a carer's perspective not to forget who you are Um, yes all right it's now I'm retired now officially but um, it's basically been my full-time job for quite a long time to take care of him 
Um, but he still has his own independence to a degree. Um, and I need mine as well. So it's important. And I, I found that joining a choir was probably one of the most satisfying and, and right things that I ever did throughout this, because um, for one thing, I didn't think I could sing. Um, <laughs> but when I joined a choir, it meant that there was friendship, there was a way to get out and do other things and, and be away from home. Um, so as long as I knew there was somebody in the vicinity to keep an eye on him and if he needed anything or if, you know, if there was anything amiss, um, which our son has always been around for that. So he's wonderful uh, in that regard. And it allows me still to be me and do something on my own. Um, really so important. And I love gardening as well. We've got a garden and I enjoy pottering and doing whatever I need to do out there so you know it's very important you yes I will care for him as much as I feel he needs it and as much as he will allow me to um but also I I don't lose sight of me and that's really really vital for a carer really really important you've got to get out there sometimes because otherwise you just in the end throw your hands in the air and say well oh, I can't do this anymore and that's no good for either of us yeah yeah that's understandable I think like you say it's really good that you still are able to have your own sense of identity um, right. and have your own hobbies and interests is that something you've sort of had to be really conscious of and have discussions around and say look I'm going to do my thing now and you can do your thing or does it just kind of naturally flow as part of your relationship I think it was a conscious decision really I knew that I needed to do something else because your life can become overtaken by the enormity of what you're taking on and you don't actually think about the fact that you're taking all that on but suddenly you realize that there's nothing else in your day um, and our son was away from home by then he'd gone to university and it was like what do I do now you know this is it this is my role in life I'd retired and <laughs> I was looking after him and and just doing whatever was needed around the home and I thought this is not me because I've always been a very very busy person I've always been a career person and I was always very involved in everything um and and I knew that I needed more out of life I needed more fulfillment more motivation um and I write as well um so I enjoy doing that and so I specifically allow myself time to do that on a daily basis this is my time I need to do my writing. All right, might not be at the same time every day, depending what the needs are of the day. But it's very important to do that and to establish that you have to make time for yourself. Um, so just sort of touching on that, do you find that you've got a strong support network around you? Have you spoken to other carers or people in a similar position? Or are there any resources that you find really useful? We have a very good network of friends and family now. We decided to make a move. This was only is less than two years ago, actually, that we moved back from where we were living in Dorset to London. Fast, sorry, fast forward. Sorry, fast, fast forward back 22 years. 22 years and a smidge. 
Well, we moved to Dorset because my health wasn't great. And going to Bournemouth, the Dorset Sea Air, always seemed to do something when we went away for a break. So me, on a spur, say to Lizzie, come on, let's move to Dorset. That's it. And Lizzie, being supportive, said, well, I'm not sure because we're away from family and this, that and the other. And I said, oh, it will be fine. Don't worry. Think of the advantages. And I, I bamboozled her to my way of thinking, which is being a bloke, being a Capricorn, being misogynistic, if you like. I had to have my way. So we moved, we swapped this, this Barrett's three-bed semi for a bigger house in Dorset because you could, you could get to a, a better way of life. Things went well for quite a while. We got a beach hut. I, wrote, I did my writing down there. I wrote a bestseller about Shakespeare at the beach hut, did interviews at the beach hut, and everything's going great. Josh is having a great time. Liz is, I didn't realise, not having such a great time because she was away from family. And then a couple of years ago, my health was not great. It was deteriorating. Josh wanted to move to London. That would have left just the both of us. No family. And who was the support for, for Lizzie? The penny was starting to drop with me. We had great friends, but they weren't family. And there's a difference. So we made the decision that to move back. And now we're where we're living, we're within what? Up to 30 minutes away from family and friends. Yeah. And they have been fantastic. Yeah. When we told them what we wanted, I thought they could have just shrugged their shoulders and said, okay. You left us and you're coming back when you want to and be very dismissive. But they weren't because they were actually caring about my health, about how Lizzie was coping. And that was a side I'd never let myself be open to before that people cared in the family that much because I always pigeonholed them in a particular way of not caring enough and not caring in a particular way. Do you know how it works? You must have heard it. It's like... My eyes were opened up to a very rich, rich life, a rich tapestry of care and concern. And although we thought we had it great in Dorset, living the dream, close to, close to the beach. As I said, we had a beach hut and we had a big house. Such was the spending power of moving from London to Dorset. But nothing like this. And that was when I began to start appreciating my life, our life. And that's when mindfulness began to take part. And instead of bitching about how poor life is, actually, it's not. And no matter how many bad days I have, they're not so bad. But I think what comes out of that and, and, and the point to make regarding support is the fact that I wasn't completely honest and honesty is a very big factor. Um, and I think that the one thing I thought, I thought I was superwoman and I could do all this. And when he said, yes, we'll move to Dorset. And I said, well, I don't know. And like he said, 
Um, I'm not sure that that's a very good idea because what happens if you get really ill and I have to cope? Oh, it'll be fine. We'll manage. With people we'll, and I didn't. Yes. And, yeah. and, you know, sadly, we've, we've suffered bereavements in our families, both of our families. And we've had to rush back and, you know, deal with all the, the, the fallout from that, which was really very, very sad and, and very distressing at the time because you couldn't be there for the people that needed you. Um, and I think that um, the one thing that I didn't do was put my point of view across. That's one thing I've learned. Um, I didn't want to upset him. I didn't want to stress him out. I felt that, you know, if he wanted to do this, it was probably, yes, okay, we'll do that. We'll, we'll do whatever you want because I just want you to be well. I just want you to be happy. I don't want you to be stressed out and I don't want to bring on a relapse. So, yes, I will go along with what you want without thinking of the wider implications of that. Um, and one thing we realised after the, the realisation hit that we were going to be quite isolated was that we couldn't travel back as easily anymore because we were both growing older. He was growing frailer. Um, his condition meant that he couldn't travel very far. So we had to move back to where we had support. Um, and we moved back to family, to very old friends who were there for us and our son. Um, and so, you know, all in all, we have a very good support network. And the, the other thing, which also comes under the honesty thing uh, and about being straight with people, is the fact that you should never be afraid to ask for help, which is something that I was always fiercely protective of that. Um, I, my training was as a, a secretary PA. So I was always the one who coped. I was always the one who got on with everything. I was the, the calm, unflappable one. And yes, you know, there's a crisis. We get on with it. Go and ask Liz. She'll, she'll deal with that. And that was one thing I was used to dealing with, one thing I was used to doing in my life. But there are times now I realise that I can't do it all on my own. I need help. I need somebody to step in. I need somebody to say, OK, I'll take over. You go and sing, do whatever you're going to do. Go and do yoga, go and do the garden. Just, you know, I will be here for him. And I think that that's important as well. It, it doesn't mean that people are saying to me, um, it doesn't mean that people are saying to me, oh, you're, you're weak, you can't cope. They're saying, you know, we're here. We're happy to help you. We want to do whatever is going to make your life easier. So now it's lost that stigma. And I don't feel that I failed just because I need to ask somebody for a bit of help because it's, it's beneficial to both of us. That's really good. Yeah, because I think in general, a lot of people struggle with that balance of um, independence versus knowing when to ask for help and sort of accepting sure. that asking for help isn't a sign of weakness. It's not. The other thing to to introduce at this point is, as I said, we have lots of nice friends, great friends in, in Dorset. Um, Liz gets invitations to go back, meet old choir friends and others. And we had a conversation, oh, maybe only last week, very recently, she said, I've now restrictions being lifted. She's going to go back to Dorset. And I said, hey, that's fantastic. And she said to me, because I was thinking, great, I'll have the day to myself. Because I'm not going to travel. That 100 miles is just too far. She said, I'll, I'll speak to Josh, our son, who lives in West London, to come over, spend the day with me. 
And I said, no, I don't want looking after. I don't want, I don't want, I don't want. Without thinking, Lizzie needs the reassurance that I'm going to be okay and not have a fall or a topple or one of the many things that I do in the course of a day because I have this habit against my will of being pulled backwards. My legs take me in a different direction. My knees aren't so supportive. And then I had to think about it and think, yes, I've got multiple sclerosis. I am disabled. It's the acceptance thing. I'm not going to be independent. I barely do much cooking around here. I don't like knives. I don't like the sharpness. Um, I'm generally right with a kettle. But I don't do, do it that often because Lizzie takes care of, 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 of all that stuff. And um, I, I'm not useless. But there's a routine and that routine could bring a little bit of ineptitude on my part inadvertently. And I'm here by myself. I scold myself. I cut myself. I anything, an accident going to the toilet. And I think it's big of me to actually accept, yes, it's a huge leap forward, continuing leap forward, that I'm not the man I was when we first met, the man that I was 20 years ago, 10 years ago. The change from last year has been, sorry, from when we moved nearly two years ago, has been absolutely immense it's I'm sorry just the, the strange thing is that when the pandemic hit mm -hmm. it was quite um timely when we moved actually because it was before all that happened um and then when we had the pandemic start it meant that um we knew that there were people just down the road from where we live which psychologically made a big difference. We couldn't see them, which kind of defeated the object of us moving back in a way. But it just meant that we knew that they were not too far away should, you know, there be a, a real emergency. We knew that there were people around. And in any case, our son was in our bubble. So, you know, he was there for us most of the time in any case. So that was great. Um, but yes, I think it is a very... A very good thing to have that support network around you you need to have that um he struggles with it as he says with um not having the independence but he now realizes that it's something that is really important um and for my peace of mind as well so from a carer's point of view if I know that he's got somebody on hand that nothing bad is going to happen, then I can go off and have a nice time. Otherwise, I'll be worried all day. So there you go. Yeah, um, I think like you say, the last year or so has definitely made us realise how important it is to know that we've got that support network around us Absolutely. and family and friends are nearby. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, so um, throughout your relationship, what are some of the biggest challenges you'd say that you've perhaps faced together? Um, I think, you know, some of those things we've, we've covered already in mm -hmm. as far as um, honesty, really important to be honest with each other, totally honest, and um, to, for both of us to see what the other one's needs were and establish that 
and, and find ways of coping with that. I think as far as other people are concerned, the, um, there are challenges there as well, because one of my biggest bugbears is about the invisible disabilities aspect of things. And many people with MS don't look disabled. And the one thing that I've seen so often, you know, we'll get out of the car, he's in a disabled parking bay um, and he puts the badge up and somebody will tackle you. Even now, if he's got a walking stick, he's not in a wheelchair, so he can't be disabled. Why is he using that space? Um, I've, I've, I've lost track of the times that I've chased somebody down the road saying, well, oh, hang on just a minute, you know, <laughs> because they normally turn tail and run when I say, well, actually, he's got multiple sclerosis. Have you got a problem with that? You know, would you like to come and find out a few of the facts? Let me tell you. And then they don't want to know. It's like, oh, God, what have we said? And, and away they go. But I think that um, as far as Martin's concerned, you know, the other thing has been using a disabled toilet when he's not obviously perhaps disabled. Um, and people think, again, there's the wheelchair thing. Oh, he's not in a wheelchair. So he obviously doesn't have the right to use a disabled toilet. Do you really have to explain to somebody about the problems that somebody with MS has to go through using a toilet? Um, do you really need to explain that you might have a catheter or that you might need a bit more space or you can't just go in and use a gents urinal? Why should you have to do that? Why should you feel the need to do that? Um, and, and I feel very, very strongly about people with MS or other disabilities that are invisible. Um, just because somebody looks OK doesn't mean they are. And I think that that is the one thing that has come out of this for both of us is that you really shouldn't judge. You really have to know a bit more about the people um, before you make a judgment on anyone. And I think that's made us very much more tolerant, if you like, of others um, and less keen to judge somebody until we know more. The lockdown process has been very levelling for other people, non-MSs, to live our life, where they can't go to do what they want to do, they can't go and spend their own money, they're restricted and boo-hoo, isn't life tough? Welcome to our world. But where I've found people have been extraordinarily kind has been when they've seen me and my stick. They, 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 they sort of, they part like, Moses parching the Dead Sea or the Red Sea and they give us space and that's been a new a new development over the last what, 16 months or so. I think it's because of the stick that I've got which was my father's. It's a cabbage stalk stick. Now it's been wholly rejected by the professionals because it's not a proper stick. Not a silver one. It's, it's one that um, shows you've got a proper serious illness. But although this is frowned upon, it's a great conversation piece. And the way I figure, it's only a stick. And if you're going to fall, you're going to fall. Regardless, it makes no difference. But that's been a great comfort to me. And people seem to respect the stick. Other people who use sticks, older people, generally older people, 
I have great conversations with these ladies because they're generally ladies. And it's not stick envy, but it seems to alter their day and brings a smile to their day because they're out of their, their uh, stereotypical day of what an old person, well, we're old people, but, you know, they're that little bit old and they use a stick and they're treated in a particular way. And you don't know anything until you've had a good stick conversation. <laughs> and I'm being serious. It's a good conversation starter anyway. <laughs> and yeah. it's, like, it's like you wishing that person that you'll never see again, but you're generally wishing them well because they're actually very outgoing. So maybe it's it's my staff, like Moses has his. <laughs> How biblical is that? No, but that's really nice because, yeah, it's really good at the minute when people have nothing to talk about except sort of the weather because they haven't been doing their usual daily routines. I think a stick... The conversation is usually, have you had your jab yet? You know, yeah, that's, yeah, well, that <laughs> that's the other one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, there are some amazing people out there who are just a little bit more understanding than they were before lockdown. COVID has been, it's not been great. It's not, it's not um, forget that. But people have actually evolved. They've been kinder. It's when Caroline Flack died her, in, her, in her farewell note. She wished that everybody, that, um, that, that people would be kinder to each other. And that lasted until the next insult was posted on, on Twitter. Lost no time at all. While everyone's saying, yeah, poor Caroline Flack, that they took no notice. But we're noticing kindness. And we wouldn't change a thing, would we? No, no, wouldn't. That's really good. Yeah, I think it's it's a shame, obviously, that tough times have to happen for people to pull together. But people at least do that, and it's nice to see yes. everyone being more friendly and kind to one another, like you said. Yeah, it costs nothing. And as Martin said, it's it's allowed people into his world a little bit mm. um, because what it means is that nobody could go anywhere. We we heard somebody complaining recently about not being able to play golf and not being able to go to the shops and not being able to go to cinemas theatre well he can't either um he could but it's a lot more difficult it takes no a lot no more no no, no he wouldn't go to the theatre he wouldn't go on an aeroplane he wouldn't do any of those no, things no not now because of covid no. but the fact is that um you know prior to that it was difficult. It took a lot of planning, a lot of thought. And, you know, sometimes it was just too much trouble. So you just don't do it. And so, you know, I think what it's done is it's been a, a great leveller. Um, COVID has. And um, whilst I'm very happy that everybody is being able to get back to some sort of normality now, and, and let's hope that continues, um, you know, we go back to how things have always been for us, which is always having to think about it. Um, I'm the I'm the constant risk assessor, if you like, you know, because I'm always looking at, well, actually, that place we're going to, there's a lot of steps there. He's not going to be able to get up there if they haven't got a lift. And so, you, you know, you've got to think ahead. You can't just go out and do the things that other people take for granted, um, that I take for granted, but I'm more aware of it now because of Martin. And so I have to take that into account before we go anywhere. Um, and, 
you know, I think that that is the one thing that other people have experienced in some form or another during the pandemic. We are, we've both had um, both our vaccinations now. And so, yes, we do feel a lot safer, but that doesn't mean to say that we're automatically going out there and saying, hey, this is fine now. We can go and do whatever we want to do. We're going to jump on a plane and we're going to go and um, have a party with people. We can't do that. It's We are still very, very cautious because we've spent the past 16 months taking care of each other. I've been very aware of his you know, the the need to keep him safe. And he's done the same for me, actually, um, because (laughs) we don't really want either of us to get ill. And so we've sort of been looking out for each other all the way through this. Um, And I think that to allow us to lapse now would be a tragedy, to be honest. And, you know, I think that goes for anybody in, in our circumstances because, you know, it's still out there. There will still be COVID, just like there's always going to be flu. We're not planning to go out there with loads of people. We just can't do that yet. We still feel very cautious. Um, But it's very nice to be able to get out there and see people again and, and have normal conversations and being able to go for a meal. But it will be done cautiously and slowly. June the 21st doesn't really make any difference to us because if they say, yes, all restrictions are going to be lifted, then we'll still be proceeding in our cautious way in any case. Um, So I guess looking at the last year or so of lockdown and um, further ahead and behind, um, what would you guys say that you've learned throughout the course of your relationship together? Um, And if you do have any tips? Um, we, we like each other. <laughs> no, it's it, we know couples, <laughs> and one in particular that he was always out doing things: guitar, golf, this, that, the other. He he didn't. He's retired, but he did a lot of things separately. He and his wife. Come lockdown. He's with his wife and having to spend time with her and be attentive and think of her. And he's like a caged tiger. He wants to get out and do things. They're always having lots and lots of holidays. Can't do the holidays. Can't do anything he used to do as a, as a single person in a long, long marriage. But they're kind of they're kind of liking each other now because he's changed. He's had to change his ways. Well, we're we're very happy because they're a nice couple. For us, it's just an opportunity just to go on the way we are and realise what it is that we do like like about each other, how great Lizzie is as my carer, as well as my spouse, and just learning just so much about this mindfulness business, which I'm new to, and meditation, and the pace of life has slowed down. To start the morning in the sunshine, doing morning meditation in the garden. Not a big garden, but got that peacefulness. To sidebar, just just sidetrack on this, um, 
when I was diagnosed, mum said her reaction was, there's always somebody worse off. Which is not the same thing to say to a young, hot-headed person saying, no, I've got MS. You know? Show me that person who's worse off. I'll gladly swap places or whatever. Because nobody was worse off than me. But then coronavirus, there have been loads of people worse off than me because they're the ones that passed away. They're the ones who can't wake up the next day and have a whinge about how lousy life is. I can't breathe. I can't do this. I, I don't want, I'm not one of those which makes me appreciate life even more. However bad my MS continues to, to go in that direction, it's not that bad. Whatever I can't do independently, it's not that bad because I can still do things and I'm forever grateful for it. It makes me grateful for, for Lizzie to help me. And um, just it's just an appreciation. And I think it's become, for me as well, um, a lot clearer because I, we've spent 24-7 together this whole time. There's been no distractions. There's been nothing else to do. Like he says, we actually discovered that we still quite like each other after all these years. Um, but what I've done as well, and, and this was a, a, a great thing. I knew it really, but it was just a, a case of getting on with it, I guess. Because we couldn't go out as we have done occasionally for a meal or, or we've had a takeaway or something like that. I've cooked everything from scratch. Everything is fresh. We've had all our food deliveries. Obviously, I've not been going to the supermarket, but, you know, we've, we've had all our food delivered. We've been fortunate in that. And, you know, if we couldn't get a food delivery, we've, our son's been able to shop for us, so it's not been an issue. But I've been cooking everything from fresh. We've eaten loads of vegetables, loads of salads, fresh foods. And it's been a revelation, actually, because I think we both feel that much better as a result. And the one thing that I discovered right at the very beginning of all this, the one thing that you have to do is be healthy on the inside as well as the out. Um, and that is a very big plus point for me, because I realised that over this pandemic, I've honed my cooking skills as well. Um, I, I was never particularly bad cook anyway but I've spent a lot more time because I've had more time to do it I've been here so it's been um, quite a, a, a very good thing for us um, and we enjoy it we make an occasion of it we sit down we eat um, and we put music on and we <laughs> what do we do do we have date nights not really date nights but it's a it's, it's a, a a time that we can sit down together, we can talk about what's happened, whether it's mundane, whether it's about what we're going to watch on the telly, it doesn't really matter. Um, but we can actually have a discussion about something over a meal that's doing us good and we can switch off, forget about everything else, all the problems of the world, and we just get on with life. And the next day we get up and do it all over again. As a result of this pandemic, we've looked after each other, looked after ourselves, and we're healthier. And happier. And happier. Do you think that's something you'll try and keep up? Sort of the oh, absolutely. Yes, we will. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we've come out the other side. And fortunately, you know, we've got our friends and family still there. Thank God yes. nobody has been affected mm. um, during the pandemic. Everybody's still there. We're still here. We're still smiling. 
<laughs> making the most of life. And we realise how important it is to do that. Because all, all those important things that we thought were so important, the detailed things that really weren't important at all. It didn't matter in the great scheme of things because life was precious. My illness, as bad as it was, we cope with it. It's life is miserable. Don't add to that misery. That's yeah, I think that's a very good sort of phrase to live by, especially at the moment. Yeah. Um, so sort of just finishing up now, really, what um, if you had to give some advice to another couple in a similar position, perhaps thinking of um, if they were having a conscious decision about taking on caring for one another, what would you um, say to them? Oh, embrace it because you don't want a stranger doing it. You don't want a stranger being... If you've been together with somebody for a long time, you're intimate with habits and things. You don't want a stranger to do it. We had a conversation just recently because I, ah, yesterday, because I had a correspondence with somebody who told me about her sister who's really bad with MS and her husband was being angry that she had MS. This is a woman who's got MS, her husband, so her brother-in-law was getting angry because he's getting frustrated about the MS and he couldn't do anything. And I said... How counterproductive is that? You're getting angry about something you can't control. You can't contribute. You're not helping. I think the, the, the one thing that I would say is that it's something that other people have probably been through. Ask for help, as I say. Um, on Martin's website, um, we often get, I often get, people contacting him and you know as a in a carer's capacity and he always passes that over to me and I speak to people regularly and say you know if I'm not going to stand on a soapbox and say hey this is what you should do but what I can say is that because we've been dealing with this for over 30 years now very likely we've been through a similar scenario um, I can tell you what we did how we coped with it and you know, if it might help you, it might not. But at least it helps if you know that somebody else has been through it and you're not alone. And I think that's one of the most important factors that people realise they're not alone. They don't have to cope alone. There are people there that will help if you don't have, you know, I mean, there are people who don't have somebody to take care of them as, as Martin has with me. Um, if that's the case, then they shouldn't be afraid to ask. There are so many different bodies out there that will give support, that will give help. And if somebody's really desperate, we're, we're really, really happy to help, to talk to them and to give support wherever we can. Um, and we've done that many times. Uh, and, and there was a lady quite recently, actually, who I was able to, she, she gave me a scenario, which we'd been through. And I was able to tell her, this is what we did. And she came back and said, thank you for that, because we tried it and it actually worked. So it's nice to know that you can help people. Um, and I would say you have to be the, the, the main thing that I've already said. You have to be honest. You have to level with people and you should never be afraid to ask for help. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant way to end on that. Thank you. Um, and thank you so much for speaking with us today.
It's been an absolute pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. And I just want to end it by saying to MSs, life really isn't that bad. There are people who have got it bad, but just to remember who you were before you had MS, you're the same vivacious, happy person with great anecdotes. Um, Don't worry about what you can't do now that you used to be able to do. You're, you're older now, so you wouldn't be able to do those things anyway. You used to run, say, 100 metres in, say, say you did a 10-second 100 metres, one minute 100 metres or whatever, but you're never going to replicate that speed again. That's the past. Live in the present. Live with what you're able to do, not what you can't do. Because what you can do is probably really, really good and the watchword always is live life, not MS. Yeah, I've, I coin that with everything that I write, I hashtag that, live life, not MS. Now, if this was a commercial podcast, here is where there would be an advert, but we're a charity, so we don't do that. So instead, we'd like to take this opportunity to tell you about our fantastic resources for people with MS. Our website, which is mstrust.org.uk, has tons of information and resources for people affected by MS, including those caring for people with the condition. In our A to Z of MS, we also have a whole section containing useful information for carers, where you can find out about things like carers assessments, carers allowance and other organisations which can help. Next, we'll be chatting to Roma, who is at the Carers Policy and Engagement Manager at Carers Hertfordshire. Uh, Carers in Hertfordshire is a local caring organisation uh, for the county in which uh, we, the MS Trust, are based as well. Uh, but they're also an associate members of Carers UK who work across the whole uh, country. Um, so hi, Roma. Thanks so much for joining me today. Could I just um, ask you to start off by telling us a little bit about Carers in Hertfordshire and how um, your role, um, what your role includes at the organisation, please? Yes, yeah, certainly, Emma. I'd be pleased to. Um, Carers in Hertfordshire is a charity, a voluntary sector organisation. Um, it was set up 25 years ago last year. <clears throat> we were due to have a big 25th birthday party, but of course, the COVID pandemic put paid to that. So we're now in our 26th year of operating. Uh, the organisation was started out by a group of uh, family carers um, because they were looking to get more support and to have more of a voice in the county. Uh, I've been working at Carers in Hertfordshire myself since 2008. I am a carer, have a carer, family caring background. Uh, and I lead on the having a voice stuff, the speaking up, the being involved in um, discussions about services and development and delivery of the sort of support that people need. Brilliant, thank you. Um, so what sort of services do you offer at Carers in Hertfordshire and are there any other organisations across the country who perhaps would be able to offer the same sort of thing um, for any of our, our people that aren't based in Hertfordshire perhaps? I, I would I'll begin, I'll begin with the second part of that question, probably the easier part. Uh, we're part of a network of what called carer centres. I mean, we all stand alone or independent, but there are carer centres, usually in most um, local authority areas where local authorities deliver social services. There are two count, uh, nation, nationwide groups, Carers Trust and Carers UK, and they can be a very good source of information about people's local group. So if, if uh, a carer was looking for support in an area and didn't know where to find it, they could contact Carers Trust, 
and ask, is there a care centre in my area? And they would put them in touch with that centre. And there are centres in certainly in most areas. They are independent. They do stand alone. So some of the services they offer and some of the ways they operate are slightly different, but they are there primarily to support carers. And I, I, I may be stating the obvious, but I'm talking about informal, unpaid carers. I say that because so often people confuse with home care workers or care practitioners. So I'm talking about mainly family, but sometimes very good friends who are supporting someone who couldn't manage without that support. Now, we as an organisation, we're currently supporting, oh, we've got about 32,000 carers on our books. Uh, I know this is the Multiple Sclerosis Society, so I checked our numbers. We've got just under 500 people caring for an adult with multiple sclerosis. And then we've got um, quite a few young carers, too, who may have a parent with multiple sclerosis. So our total number comes up to 555. But we support families, carers, and it may be around physical disability or illness. It may be about mental health. It may be about learning disability. It may be about drug usage. It may be about dementia. But it's across the piece. So if someone is an unpaid carer, we're an organisation here that's to support them. All the services that we offer to carers are free. We know there's no, you know, if you start charging carers for services, well, you know, they focus on the person they support. They're not going to start buying services for themselves. So our aims, really, one of our main aims is to make caring more visible. I mean, this is Carers Week, so I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you. Make it more visible so carers will realise I am a carer. I am entitled to support and help in my own right. Because so often people will think, well, no, I'm mum, I'm dad you know, or I'm husband, wife, whatever, this is my job, this is my role, I signed up for sickness and health. No, if someone's really relying on you, then you are a carer, and under the Care Act 2014, you have the right to information, advice, support, assessment, and if you need them, services in your own right. So we're trying to make caring visible so that we can reach people earlier in their caring life, if you like. You know, not when things are breaking down. We want to get in touch with people at an early stage, even if it's only to provide them with information at that stage, but so that they're in touch with an organisation that can support or signpost them. What else are our aims? Well, we want carers to have a voice. We want carers to be able to speak up. We want carers to feel they've got some choice and control about their lives and some choice and control about their caring role. So those are our aims, so we deliver a, a wide range of services actually to try and meet those aims. We have a one-to-one -one telephone support service that's available every day of the week, nine to five or nine to four thirty on a on a Friday, and that's one-to-one -one work with someone talking about well, what are their aspirations? What's happening? Are they finding time for themselves? Are they looking after their own health, which is an important one? Are they getting a break if they need it? And we could offer uh, small funding from the NHS to provide help people to have a little break and breaks can be completely different things I mean some people's break is uh, to have their hair done once a week someone else's break is to join a gym someone else's break is to have someone in the home so they can get out to the choir or whatever it is they want to do so that's there so that's helpful for people we have carers who volunteer to be mentors so they'll walk down the path with someone who they perhaps have a similar background to we have carers who volunteer for us and they make keeping in touch calls to people who are at home on their own. We have those sorts of things going on. We have what we call a carer's passport. And this is a bit like a discount card. 
So I've got a colleague who spends a lot of time contacting organisations throughout Hertfordshire saying, would you offer a discount to carers? So you have a discount card and that passport's quite a useful way of identifying yourself as a carer if you need to. But it could also mean you might get some 5% off perhaps at the dry cleaners when you go to a leisure centre. But it's to try and make people feel a bit valued because that's another thing we want. We do really want carers to feel valued. We want their experience to be recognised. When you think of the, I think they save the health and social care system about two million pounds in Hertfordshire. So we think that needs to be recognised. We have what's called a carers development and learning team, and they put on free courses. And they could be just for fun. They could be something like digital digital photography, or they could be, we were doing ballet bar during the lockdown online. I've no idea how people managed. It was very popular art courses, things for fun, but also helpful things like money advice, benefits advice, or lasting power of attorney, what is it? What's deputyship? What do I need to put in place for the future? If I'm having to take on a bit of a physical caring role, how do I use the equipment? How do I make sure I don't hurt my back? So that sort of thing goes on as well. We've got a small team of admiral nurses and they're specialist nurses who work in the field of dementia with people. Uh, And in the southwest of the county in the Boreham Wood area, we have a small home care agency and we also provide what we call sitting services to give carers a break again in that part of the county. And I said, my job really is to lead an involvement service. So we try and make sure that carers get that platform to say it like it is. Uh, And it's been very tough for people during the pandemic. You know, our parent bodies, Carers UK, have done a lot of research that have just shown during that pandemic Most carers have taken on a much heavier caring role as services have shut down. And so I think there's a real recognition now that without family carers, the system really wouldn't work very well. Sounds like you guys do a real variety of different, offer a real variety of different support and services, which is really great. I think it's worth mentioning our young carers work as well, because, you know, we have got young people whose family, family members have got a disability or an illness. It might be a brother or a sister. It might be one or dad. So we have a young carers team and they will again provide one to one support or in the long summer holidays some activities to get people, get the youngsters together and have a bit of fun. And they look for volunteers from the rest of the organisation to go and help staff that. It's actually quite popular. And they run an annual young carers conference so the young people can speak up about the things that are important to them too and get their voices heard. So you talked a little bit about sort of finding time for themselves and things like that. What would you say are some of the other challenges that carers face in their caring roles? Well, for carers of working age, it can often be very difficult to stay in work. If you've got a big caring role, you might go down to part-time working. You might have to stop working altogether if you haven't got an employer who's carer-friendly and will allow flexible working and perhaps has carers leave. So people tend to, you know, I think something like three out of five carers have to pack up work. Well, that has an impact on finances in the household, doesn't it? So, you know, financially people can find themselves quite badly off, which is hard. We know that carers, we know caring's hard. So we know that a lot of carers suffer stress and they worry and they have sleepless nights because they worry about the role and they may hurt themselves if they aren't shown how to lift someone or, or help someone properly. They may help their back. So, you know, caring is tough. It is tough. That's not to say it isn't very positive in many ways and people do it because they want to and people get great satisfaction from it, but it is tough. So we know impact on finances, impact on health, 
impact on general well-being. And that's why people need a break. They need the right information at the right time so that they can be signposted if necessary to appropriate services or that we can help them directly. So I think those are the big challenges, challenges to health, challenges to finances. Um, the Public Health England um, have been looking at whether caring in itself is what they call a social determinant of health, one of those things that impacts on your, your health in your life, like housing can be or access to leisure can be. And I think that research is suggesting now caring in itself is a determinant of how well or otherwise people are. Mm, that'll definitely be an interesting an interesting thing to look at when they publish the full results on that one. Um, so if someone was thinking of becoming a carer for perhaps a friend or family member, what things would you say they need to consider or any tips or advice that you might be able to give them? At an early stage, I would certainly suggest they contact us so we can talk to them on a one-to-one basis about what might be involved and what sort of services might be out there to support the person that they're going to be caring for, but also to make sure that they don't wear themselves out and run themselves ragged. So I think get in touch, have a conversation. I mean, it's often in the early days of, of an illness or a disability, it's often getting information. What is the future going to look like here? What sort of preparation do I need to make? If this is perhaps my husband or my wife or my mum or my dad. So get the information at an early stage because then you can prepare and then you can be clear about what you're taking on. And on the other hand, if you were someone with MS who perhaps felt like you needed a little bit more care and help at home um, and maybe you didn't have any family or friends who were able to spare that time, what advice would you give them and what resources would you suggest that they look at? Well, I know in Hertfordshire we've got three uh, local multiple sclerosis societies and where I've spoken to carers who are supporting someone with MS they do say they are a good they're a good source of support and information for the individual with multiple sclerosis so I think they're certainly worth being in contact with Uh, I mean really what are people going to need perhaps they're going to need help in the home with personal care perhaps they're going to need you know that sort of support perhaps they're going to need some general advice about benefits or perhaps they need general advice about staying in work or finding alternative employment so I think some of that certainly they would get through the voluntary sector but I would be suggesting they contact adult care services certainly for a social care assessment in their own right because what we're told, the big challenges out there are getting good, reliable domiciliary care in the home, if that's what you're going to need, making sure you're getting the right equipment to enable you to live independently and get out and about. These are big challenges for people. Or, as I say, the one that's precious to me is, you know, finding peers, finding people to talk to and being hopeful about the future. I've not been in the position of having a diagnosis for a condition like multiple sclerosis. And I imagine that it has a huge impact on people to gear up for that and to move forward positively. Um, I mean, we found that with carers as well. The impact of changes in relationship are quite difficult. But we have got in Hertfordshire, the Hertfordshire Partnership Foundation Trust, and they do this um, access to psychological therapies and some of the work they do with people around facing up to you know, changes in your life and changes that are going to impact in the longer term. You also have New Leaf in Hertfordshire, which is a, a college, a recovery college, which again will offer courses to support people with thinking about, well, okay, my life has changed. This isn't necessarily going to be easy to deal with. How do I how do I build up my resilience and, and make the best of that? And that's both for people with a diagnosis and for their family as well. Um, so you've got sort of touched upon 
um, all of the different services that you provide and which ones people really appreciate. Um, what would you say are perhaps some of the most popular services and have you seen a big change in which have been most popular over the last year during the pandemic? Well, I think over the last year, it's been very, very tough, um, really, because a lot of our activities would normally be face-to-face and they bring some social content into people's lives, don't they? And obviously all the face-to-face meetings have had to close down, although hopefully we're going to be starting holding them again soon. Uh, So we've gone on to online meetings. It doesn't work for everybody because not everybody feels confident um, in the IT digital world, but we have found a great take-up on art for fun courses. I said the the ballet bar, extraordinarily enough, has been extremely popular. Um, Some quizzes have been extremely popular, but fun things online. But people have also, or carers have also welcomed the opportunity to get together as a group. So we've run meetings for carers of people with a mental illness, for example, or physical disability, to talk to one another and meet up online because they weren't having the chance to meet up in other ways. So I think the big change has been the move to online work. Now, I think I, I think it's very likely that we and many other organisations will continue a mixture of online and face-to-face work because this has brought in people who perhaps wouldn't want to travel to a meeting or perhaps wouldn't be able to leave someone and travel for a meeting. It has brought in people who are at work because we've been able to have more evening online meetings. So it's benefited some. Those who struggle with managing Zoom or Teams or whatever it is haven't benefited so well. But we have been funded to provide, I think, just over 80 tablets to people who are willing to have a go and see how it works. So I think, you know, we will be offering that sort of support, hands-on support in the future, hopefully. We can meet up with people how to use a phone or a tablet to get online and to be able to, you know, even in the most difficult times, maintain contact with people. But outside the pandemic... Passport is always quite popular. The chance to get together and um, chew the cud and give each other a bit of support is always popular. Talking to people, our mentoring service, talking to someone who's had the same journey as you, but perhaps is further down the line with it, is always popular. The most, I think, the biggest thing that enables carers to carry on caring is to have a good break, actually, have a good, enjoyable break and time to do what you want to do in that break. Yeah, so it's really important, I guess, from what you've been saying about those connections with people in a similar situation and then and the time as well. I mean, we get good support from the county council. So, for example, the county's money advice unit will always provide benefits advice. It'll talk to people about how you support your relative to make a PIP or DLA um, application. It'll support carers to make a carer's allowance application or to look at what any other benefits they might be eligible for. So we get very good support from them. Issues like disabled facilities, adaptations, which I would think are really quite important for people with multiple sclerosis, um, are more difficult because in our county we've got 10 different local authorities and they're you know, the districts and the borough councils and they're the ones who uh, manage the disabled facilities um, Uh, applications and grants and so that's a little bit more disparate but nonetheless it's there for people and we have advocacy services with power the advocacy agency who can help the uh, individual with multiple sclerosis make the application if they need to that's brilliant thank you it's been really useful getting some of some of that information and I'm sure on our podcast people will find that really helpful well we are here for them and I know Family members will often put themselves second and not think about themselves. And I guess my message is it's carers week. 
carers are important people. If their own health and well-being fails, they will not be able to continue caring. So my message is look after yourself. If you live in Hertfordshire, get in touch with us. If you live in another county or a metropolitan borough or unitary authority, check out your local carer centre and get in touch with them. We're here for them. And we're back. That was a lot of um, like information to take in. Um, I, I, I'd say I just love, <laughs> I love Roma's energy about things. You know, I, I feel like I don't really know that much about uh, the, the the world of carers um, myself. I've worked for the MS Trust for a while, and and um, there is quite a lot of carers that are in our Facebook group, um, and I know like what she was saying about taking in information and getting information seems to sort of be um, a really kind of thing that people want in the group but I feel like from both these interviews uh, the one thing that really came across is like communication and keep on talking to each other let you know you know that for the person who is the carer to speak up about their feelings as well Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that, isn't it? Caring isn't just a one-size-fits-all approach. It can be tailored to both your relationship and your needs. Um, And, yeah, it can be in an unpaid facility. Obviously, if you feel like you need that extra support, there are places that you can go and ask for sort of paid care um, through those two. Yeah, and I think... You know, what Roma was saying about, you know, if it's your husband or if it's if it's your parents, you may feel like this is my duty. I have to do this. And this is what, you know, what's expected of me. Um, but I think it's, you know, if you have those kind of feelings, then it's it's, it's really important to, to look after your, your mind as well, because it might all get a bit much because, you, you know, it's it's if we're talking about people that are professional carers and, and you were saying, you know, that's a, so it can, can take your toil on, on, on your own health as well, because, you know, there might be lifting involved. There might be heavy, heavy things um, that your body might not be used to. So I think like really look for information um, before, before you think about becoming a carer. And then while you're a carer, keep on up to date with getting information but also support for yourself and I think that was she, she said about getting a break and um, what that may be you know she mentioned going to the hairdressers or, or you know going maybe you want to go for some exercise or, or going for a walk I think all those things is like super important not to neglect or push to the side. Yeah both Lizzie and Roma sort of touched on it didn't they which highlights to me personally how how important a thing it is for carers to take that time for themselves. I know everyone feels in their daily life that they don't necessarily have enough hours in the day to do everything they want, but it's sort of trying to prioritise taking that care for yourself as well as the person you're caring for. And it doesn't have to be, you know, two hours every day. It can be half an hour every week, but just trying to find that time as a, and making it a priority where you can. Yeah. And, um- bringing back to what Martin was saying as well like when you do live with MS in the family it is like they both live with MS um, because even with a person who hasn't got MS themselves sort of lives with it so gets really affected by it so I think that that sort of connection that you you, you get with it and understanding I think you know that carers are they need to be celebrated more. I think it's wonderful that we have Carers Week. I think, you know, let people know about it. There's a lot of people out there who you wouldn't necessarily think are carers, but they are, you know, and then there's young carers, 
and um, I think it's um, it, it's time that they got some attention. Yeah, definitely. Like you say, I think it's that sort of blurred line where a lot of people downplay the role that they play in caring for someone else. And it is important to acknowledge it. You know, you can be humble and you can be someone that doesn't like to focus on things that they do or or draw attention to it. But at the same time, you can still accept your role and, like we said, take some time out for yourself. Yeah, yeah. And if, if you do want any information if you are a carer do get in touch with the MS Trust because we do have a lot of information about MS but also we can point you in the right direction um, if you're looking for specific support for you as a carer. Remember that if you have any questions about MS we're here for you. Our inquiry service is available Monday to Friday except on UK bank holidays and that's from 9am to 5pm. Outside of these hours, you're welcome to leave us a message and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And you can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter and Instagram. And you can find this podcast on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts and Amazon Music. Get in touch and like they say, like and subscribe. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to Anne Chapman Audio for the theme tune of this podcast. <laughs>